0: Hey Josh can you guess where that sound is coming from
1: uh, a windy bus station
0: colder
1: an industrial freezer
0: warmer
1: uh, wind tunnel in a cold country
0: so close it's coming from Antarctica it's one of the places a career in stem can take you And we'll hear from some of the scientists and non-scientists who went on this Antarctic adventure in this episode and more in this series.
1: Before we go any further, I think we should introduce ourselves. So who are you?
0: Such a good point. I'm Buffy Gorilla. I'm producer of this podcast, but I'm wondering, who are you?
1: I'm Josh Cake. I'm a former science student, now turned writer and performer.
0: That's right, everyone. We'll be your tour guides on this around the world and across the spectrum look at where your career can take you in this episode of The Secret Life of STEM.
1: We polled high school students and you voted and you named this podcast The Secret Life of STEM.
0: If we can give you one thing during this podcast, it's to plant the seed of your future prospects. You can really work anywhere.
1: 11, 10,
0: 9. Maybe even outer space. Think big. And I know that sounds so cheesy.
1: It does, but sometimes cheesy works, and even cheesy can be solid life advice.
0: I know, it's true. But what if a trip along the Drake Passage, the waterway between the southern tip of South America and Antarctica, could be a metaphor for your career path?
2: So we are in the middle of the Drake Passage. We're heading back from Antarctica up to Ushuaia. We're in the middle of the ocean. It's a little bit stormy. There are some six to eight meter waves, but we just got hit by a big 11 meter wave that knocked us really quite firmly sideways. Everyone fell over. We can hear the wind gusting outside. And actually it's really surprising. We haven't seen very many birds. So I don't know whether they're moved away from the storm or if they're just sitting tight, but. We haven't seen very much wildlife this time, but it's quite choppy. So I think it would be quite difficult to see whales. How does this compare to the first Drake crossing we did on the way here? So the first drape crossing on the way here, I was seasick for most of it. So I spent most of it in bed. This is much more enjoyable <laughs> because I've managed to get on top of my meds. But I think this is way worse. <laughs> um, there's spray just flying over the front of the ship. Uh, huge white caps, massive waves. And I feel like I'm on a massive giant surfboard.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's life for Dr. Helen Wade, a participant from Homeward Bound, an organization whose tagline is Mother Nature Needs Her Daughters. And I think that's pretty clever. Plus, Dr. Wade's description of rocky seas and gusting winds, the career parallels right themselves.
1: Let's see where else STEM careers have taken science types let's meet some adventurous souls
3: start
4: my name is Dr. Sarah Hania. I'm a early career research fellow working at the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. My background is in paediatrics, so i trained as a paediatrician in paediatric infectious diseases. And at the moment, I'm working in the area of research, mostly concentrating on child malnutrition, working in indigenous communities, as well as doing some global health.
0: And Dr. Hania knows
4: for global health. Emphasis on the global when I got into paediatrics then I realised that I was really interested in global health or trying to work in resource-poor settings, so I set myself the goal of wanting to work for Médecins Sans Frontières, MSF, and I knew to be able to do that I would have to work in Aboriginal communities and Aboriginal settings to get some, I guess, exposure to more challenging work. So I did that. I went up to Alice Springs and also to Darwin and spent some time up there and then applied to work with MSF and was really, really excited. It was just like a dream coming true and of course my my parents went so excited <laughs> uh, when I told them I'm going to Ethiopia for a year and I'm going to be working in a um, tuberculosis program. So we were providing medical care to the semi-nomadic population in the Afar region in northeastern Ethiopia and it was right out in the middle of nowhere, eight hours from Addis Ababa, living like in little tents. I also worked in Liberia and that was also very challenging because it was just after the civil war. So Liberia is completely destroyed just talking to the people for example you would ask someone how are you and they would say i'm okay for now there was always we can't really look into the future because you don't know what's going to happen next
0: that's dedication to making a difference
1: let's meet dr theresa jones a senior lecturer in the school of biosciences at the university of melbourne
5: I do research and I research into the ecological impact of artificial light at night. So I look at what happens when we flood our cities and our, our environments with
1: light. Tell us more, Dr. Jones.
5: So, what I do is I work on boring brown insects that live in amazing places. So, for my PhD, I was in Brazil for a year studying a little tiny fly. That was fantastic. I got to see the Amazon. I got to stick my hands in the meeting of the waters. You know, so for me, that was just, it was on my bucket list. I worked in Hawaii. Um, I studied, again, a little brown fly that lived halfway up a a volcano on Maui. And so I've travelled to Sweden. I've travelled to Indonesia. A whole range of different animals are found in the most amazing places. And so I work on animals that live in the most amazing places.
1: Wow. That's some next-level adventuring. This certainly may not be for everyone. And by the way, the meeting of the waters is where the dark Rio Negro and the pale, sandy-coloured Amazon River meet.
0: Thanks, Josh. I didn't know that. Other people we spoke to went on research trips or to conferences in even more places. Japan, Canada, South Africa, Germany, the United States, and the list goes on. But perhaps the opportunity to get out of town just isn't for you and that's okay
6: amy shepherd thought maybe i should but then and so i was actually originally going to go over to england which is where the people who invented this technology were but the funding fell through and then i kind of was just googling looking at other neuroscience projects and i kind of stumbled across the university of melbourne and they were using that same technology and here i am now and do you ever regret
0: the decision of not going to the UK or abroad?
6: Not really. I went to visit my friend who's at that university now, and he finds it quite hard. He's like, England is cold and grey, and Melbourne is, the weather's more like home but warmer, which is great. I really love it here in Melbourne. And I think in science, it's not necessarily missed opportunities. It's not like that one would have been so much better. I'm really happy here, and I don't regret missing out. At the time, it was about a month where I was like, my life is over. Everything is terrible. But now I'm really, really happy. I wouldn't change it for the world.
1: That sound means we have come to the reverse engineering portion of this podcast. In this episode, Yu Ting Lin, a University of Melbourne student studying software engineering, helps us unpack the science of everyday things. In this case, Yu Ting explores the geographical differences... In skin pigments.
7: Hi everyone, my name is Yuting. I'm a first year software engineering student and I love coding because I get so much satisfaction from solving bugs in programs. Today's topic is skin colour. We humans are all the same species, yet we have different skin colours ranging from very dark brown to extremely fair. Why is that? Our story starts about 1.2 million years ago when the earth experienced a mega drought that wiped out much of the existing vegetation and forced our furry ancestors to live in dry open landscapes directly under the sun. The sun, as you all know, produces a lot of heat and our ancestors with their abundance of thick fur had a new problem, heat stroke. Those with an adaptation of less hair and more sweat glands meant they could keep cool while searching for food and water, which meant survival. Over time, our ancestors shed that fur. Now, if we look at a branch of our closest relatives, the chimpanzees, you might notice that under their fur is actually pale skin. But pale skin brings along another serious problem, which is the damage that UV rays can do to our skin cells. This is probably not a surprise as it is well known that Australia has one of the highest rates of skin cancer. Here comes our saviour, a brown pigment called melanin made by cells called melanocytes in the skin. It's a sort of natural sunscreen that acts as a barrier between the sun and our delicate skin cells. It's the biology of how you get a tan. Early humans were constantly under the sun's exposure, so permanently dark skin would have assisted survival. Then comes the question, why are a lot of us actually quite fair? The clue lies in geography. About 60,000 years ago, humans started venturing out of Africa and over the course of the next 50,000 years, spread over many parts of the continent. While in Africa, having dark skin made perfect sense. In areas further away from the equator, such as Canada, it started to become a problem. The reason for this is that although overexposure of UV rays is harmful, a sufficient amount is still needed for our bodies to receive vitamin D. A lack of vitamin D poses many health risks which were especially prevalent in pregnant women as it could cause poor fetal development and the dark skin we had developed didn't allow enough vitamin D to get through. This caused many of our early ancestors to essentially revert to a lighter skin tone, in order to get that necessary vitamin D that results in a diverse range of skin colours that we have today. Now, having listened to this, if you compare your skin colour to your friends from the other side of the world, can you find a correlation in your difference in skin colour and geographic distribution?
1: Thanks, Yu Ting. We'll be hearing more from current STEM students, and this could be you in the future.
0: So whether we're talking where can STEM take you as a pack-your-suitcase-and-grab-your-passport kind of way, or where it can take you as a map-your-dream-career trajectory, the possibilities are seemingly endless. There's Dr. Frances Saperovich, a first-generation immigrant who went from uni dropout and young mother to circle back to become a professor and the head of the University of Melbourne's chemistry department.
3: Yes, it's quite a surprise to me as well. I came from a poor migrant family. My dad went to first grade. My mum went to second grade. So we had no idea what university was. But the teachers kept telling me that there would be people like me at university. So I was kind of looking forward to meeting people like me because I hadn't met many previously. But I really didn't think that I would be going to university And I was lucky enough to get a um, scholarship, a teacher scholarship, as well as a Commonwealth scholarship. And I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, and the teacher scholarship paid a little bit more, so I decided to take that one. I still cannot understand people knowing what they wanted to do when they were little. Because when I was a child, I didn't think that I would have a career. I I didn't have examples of women with careers. My mum cleaned houses. Uh, Women in Broken Hill, once they got married, weren't allowed to work. So, you know, it didn't seem to be an important thing. So I thought I would grow up and be a princess if I was lucky.
1: Yes, life is bound to throw you surprises, and how we prepare or manage the unknowns is something we'll continue to explore in episode two. But what if you think you already know what you want to do? The path forward may seem easy, and it becomes a singular focus, like Dr Sarah Haneers.
4: I always wanted to be a doctor. So even when I was a a young girl, uh, I think because I had my father who was a doctor, he was a neurosurgeon and I really looked up to him and I I just wanted to be like him. So all throughout school, junior school, high school, I was concentrated and focused on becoming a doctor because that was, yeah, that was my dream to be like my dad. And I also noticed that there weren't a lot of female surgeons around. So it was a big dream of mine to become a female surgeon. I really concentrated and focused throughout school on that goal i had a lot of people saying to me what if you don't get into medicine what if your marks aren't high enough and i said it doesn't matter i'll just try again i'll keep going until until i get in and i was lucky enough to get in the first time and i think it's it's changed a lot now so it's um, not just on your marks but on other things but my journey to becoming a surgeon yeah didn't actually happen it kind of got derailed not derailed but i i took another path which was yeah it's made me even happier i think
0: open to the unexpected that is so good to hear And sometimes you can use your interests to guide you, like
6: Dr. Amy Shepard. I started off when I was doing kind of generic medical biology. But in university, I really discovered a love for psychology, and neuroscience is the natural intersection between biology and psychology.
1: You may also dabble a little of this, a little of that, until you find what fits. But it seems to all come good in the end. Here's how Dr. Teresa Jones mapped out her path.
5: When I completed my undergraduate, I was quite fortunate that I went on an expedition, a three-month expedition to Guyana. So I basically ended up in a rainforest, living in a, a small village that we'd made ourselves. So we were sleeping in hammocks and we had a latrine that we'd dug ourselves and we were working on. The impact of a road, basically, not not just any road, like a 20-metre expanse that they'd cut through the forest. So that was kind of my what I did after my undergrad. And I, at that point, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So... After that I worked as a research assistant for a year and then about halfway through that I realised that actually I didn't want to be doing other people's research, I wanted to do my own research. And that's when I decided to start applying for PhDs and that's when I started looking around and I I found this one that was based in London which is perfect because that's where I lived and it did field work in Brazil which I thought, well that's even more perfect. Um, So that was that one. And so then I floundered, then I went traveling, thinking, what do you do? I did a few science communication jobs after that. So I took some time off and out. I actually ended up taking two years away. One year because I wanted to and one year because that's how much longer it took me to get a position. So the science communication was fantastic. It meant that I really got to translate my science into something that I could, you know, talk to the general public about. There were science fairs and all. Um, That was really fun.
0: Taking time off. Is that really an option?
8: Well, my first name's David, and last name Gonzalez. I'm not really fussed about my title, but I, I guess it's doctor. But my my job here is um, I'm an early career research fellow at the NH and MRC, so the National Health and Medical Research Council, um, and I'm one of the early career research fellows. I wasn't one of those people who really knew what I was going to do when I was finishing school. In fact, I was I was thinking about all sorts of different things. What were they? And I thought about taking some time off and just hanging out, playing some music, which I kind of ended up doing anyway. My first couple of years at uni were, were not the way you would classically want want uni to go. So, you know, I was really into music and I was really, really into into playing cricket, I sort of played at the uni for a little bit. What ended up happening was at uni, if you want to do certain things later, there are prerequisite subjects that that you have to do. And I did biology in first year, and I actually didn't like it the first time I did it. It didn't gel with me at the time. And I actually, I left uni after two years of doing uni. I think the first couple of years I wasn't really quite prepared for everything that was going on. I was really fortunate after taking some time away and, and, and actually working and, and and working in a full-time work and things like that, I moved in with an uncle of mine who was living pretty close to Melbourne, and he actually had a um, bad car accident. So he's a doctor, um, his surgeon, and he had a car accident that left him quadriplegic, which is really sad and, and unfortunate. So this is a situation where you damage your spinal cord. And then the signals that go up and down your spinal cord are stopped. And I moved in with him. I was supposed to be helping him a bit, but in the end, he was probably helping me more than anything else. And he's just a really fantastic person. And we got to talking about just science and biology and things like that. And I got really interested and it sort of really ignited a bit of a passion about how the nervous system works. Um, And I hadn't really encountered that in first year biology because you're learning about all sorts of things in biology or in physics or chemistry. There was a little bit in of neuroscience in year, in year 12, but nothing really deep, and I got really interested. And then I, I managed to um, somehow get myself back into uni.
0: Once you've lived out of a suitcase and explored the world, it's nice to know that you can stay home and let the world of STEM possibilities come to you. Here's Dr. Sarah
4: Hania. Well, now... I feel like I want to settle. <laughs> I've been I've been trekking around the world for a long time and for a long time even when I came back to Melbourne I lived out of a suitcase because I just felt like I was about to take off somewhere again and it was a really big step for me to actually take my clothes out and put them into a, <laughs> into my drawers and feel like no you're home now you need to to put your roots down and yeah I never thought I'd find somewhere I want to live for the rest of my life and I discovered Melbourne and I love Melbourne. And I met my fiancé and yeah, it's just wonderful to be thinking of planning a life together and to be that team. To have someone there by you, like I did all this stuff for myself, was always the single independent woman and now I'm going to have someone, yeah, my soulmate, my team partner and it's just nice to, to feel that.
0: Thanks for listening to The Secret Life of STEM. This series is made possible by the University of Melbourne. Time for some credits.
1: Thanks to everyone who shared their stories today.
0: My co-host for this episode was Josh Cake. Thank you, Josh.
1: Thank you, Buffy. This podcast is produced, edited, and hosted by Buffy Gorilla.
0: Well, just this episode, we get some more people in later on. We heard reverse engineering segment from Yu Ting Lin.
1: The supervising co-producer and scientific advisor is Dr. Andy Horvath.
0: She's a real doctor. real doctor. Additional production and editing support from Sylvie Van Wall and Arch Cuthbertson. Life of STEM, episode one, take one. This is exciting.
1: It was fun. I'm keen.
0: Are we recording?